Why don't I pray before we start. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, we pray now as we dig in. Father, speak to us. Father, change us. Father, help us to see where um, we ought to be more like your son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is regarded by many people, the world over as the creme de la creme of moral teaching. The big cheese in the world of morality. The Everest of ethical instruction. Uh, something that's, that's something even non-believers uh, believe, and uh, they respect and often admire the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. But is that what Jesus is doing here? You know, sort of, sort of they're thinking, what shall I preach about? Oh, I know, I'll give my bit of ethics. You know, like uh, I'll add into what Plato and Confucius have said and give them a run for their money. Not in the slightest. The Sermon on the Mount does not come to us in a vacuum. It's not sort of just a sermon by itself about morality. In fact, it comes to us from a mountain. That should be the first clue that there's something a bit different going on. That should give us pause for thought. There was another time that God gave instructions for life from a mountain. In fact, Matthew's Gospel has been painting Jesus in this first section of Matthew's Gospel as a new Moses. He's been giving us stories that remind us of Moses as we go through. So the murder of the infants in Bethlehem by the king. It's very similar, isn't it, to the murder of children by Pharaoh around Moses' time. Matthew's gospel is the one that records that they go to Egypt and then come out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I've called my son. It gives us the 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by bread and idolatry and putting God to the test. Which, if you think about it, is the same things that the Israelites were tested by. Now, here is Jesus. He calls his disciples to himself and begins to teach them. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's a new, better mountain covenant for a new, better Israel. This is not new moral teaching for the world. It's a blueprint for the life of God's new covenant community. He's saying, this is what my people will be like. This is what a community of disciples of Jesus will look like. So how will he start? Well, he's going to start with us as individuals. What does it mean to be a disciple in this new community, this new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven? So the first thing we see, I'm just going to have to skip past the song, so I think I put it in the wrong place. Here we go. The DNA of a disciple. That's what we really see to start with, the DNA of a disciple. Let me have a, a read of those first few again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then what follows, you get eight of these uh, beatitudes, eight of these blessings, eight characteristics of the kingdom. And they all begin with, Blessed are... The first four seem to be primarily about our relationship with God. And the second four, our relationship with each other. It's a bit like the two halves of the Ten Commandments that uh, Moses taught on the mountain. But the difference here is there are no commandments. This is a description. We're supposed to look at these and compare ourselves to them. This is not eight separate groups, the way you sort of get sometimes sort of taught. There's this group that's blessed and there's this group that's blessed. They're all contained by that phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's supposed to give us the impression that this is what we're all to be like. This is what a disciple in the new community, the new kingdom looks like. 
So firstly, poor in spirit. Well, poverty is not something we generally seek after, is it? It's something that we try and get out of. In fact, you got that big campaign, didn't we? Uh, Make poverty history. So if poverty is bad, well, spiritual poverty, that sounds even worse, doesn't it? Who would want to be spiritually poor? The answer is that this is not something that we aspire to. It's something that we are. A Christian is someone who acknowledges that they're spiritually bankrupt. As the old hymn goes, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. As he starts this list, he begins with one of the most fundamental. There is no way to buy yourself into this kingdom, to earn yourself into this community. It has to be given. There's no way to earn yourself favour with God. On the contrary, we must admit that we're beggars. Penniless, spiritually speaking, and in need of pity. Far from being in credit with God, we're actually in debt to God. A debt we could never repay. We cannot even begin to understand this new kingdom community if we misunderstand this fact. In fact, we can never really truly understand God if we misunderstand this. We are not God's equals. We're not even close. We are less than beggars, if you like, seated at the gates of Buckingham Palace. And yet, as we'll see later on, he chooses to call us sons. But if for a moment we think we deserve that, if for an instant we think we've earned it in some way, we could not be more mistaken. So this verse is a great leveller. We're all bankrupt before God. And yet, Jesus says, that means that we're blessed. Why? Well, everything we receive, we receive from the very hand of God. If we acknowledge this to be true, we'll actually begin to relate to God in the right way. Not like a cosmic vending machine, you know, I put good works in and I get blessings out. We'll come to him as beggars, only able to receive. But the wonderful thing is that God delights to give in those circumstances. He is the great giver who delights to show pity to those in need who come to him. So Christians are those who are poor in spirit. It means that when we come to God, we come with nothing in our hands. And that means that we're blessed because God gives us everything. The second thing that we see is that Christians are those who mourn. We're mourning. Now, mourning is not always associated with death in the original language. But it is associated with great sadness and often weeping. Someone has explained the word as grief manifested, grief shown. A Christian is someone who mourns, who shows grief. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Didn't you stand up last week and tell us that a Christian pursues joy in God? Isn't it, in fact, that one of our doctrinal distinctives as a church? How do those two fit together? Well, first of all, the verse itself carries that same tension, if you think about it. You could translate it, happy are the sad. Yeah? Which would, at first glance, to seem to be contradictory within itself. If we feel there's a tension here, then we're probably on the right track. But second of all, we need to consider what we're sad about. What are we mourning? Well, the answer has almost universally been down through the ages when people have looked at this verse 
sin. That's what he's talking about. A Christian is someone who mourns their sin. Now this is a reminder, if you needed one, that the Bible expects that Christians will still sin. Not that they should, but that they will. You sin before you become a Christian, you sin after you become a Christian. The big difference though, is, or one of the big differences, is the attitude of a Christian to their sin. When we sin as an unbeliever, generally we don't mourn that sin, do we? We might mourn getting caught or found out, but generally we're not that bothered. We often find justifications and excuses, actually, don't we, to explain away why it really wasn't so bad. But as Christians, we have a different attitude to sin. We mourn it. Not just the consequences of it, not just because it makes us feel bad, but the sin itself. We say along with King David, against you and you only have I sinned. We feel the offence and we mourn it. So there is sadness for the Christian because we're still stained by sin. But it's a sadness that leads to joy. Why? Because it teaches us to go to God for forgiveness. Not only is he the great giver, he's the great forgiver. But if we do not mourn our sin, we won't go to God to forgive it, will we? John Calvin wrote that this morning provides us with encouragements to seek true comfort in God alone. The source of all comfort, we'll come to that a bit later on. But this is a reminder that we mourn our sin, but we will be comforted. Next of all, meek. Part of a Christian's DNA is meekness. Now, meekness is perhaps one of the most misunderstood words in the English language. And because of that, this verse is basically ignored. More of the commentaries tell you what it doesn't mean rather than what it does mean. I tried Googling meekness quote. Uh, The top answer was confused.com. You can try it when you get home. True. Um, But when I looked uh, at different ways of describing this word, I found them almost contradictory about what meekness is and what meekness isn't. But if you come along to Bible skills training, you'll discover that Bible words have Bible meanings. The Bible often tells us what these words mean elsewhere. And this beatitude is actually a direct quote from the Old Testament. It becomes a bit clearer what that word means. So on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see the Psalm 37. I've given you a bit of context. That's another thing, Bible skills training. Let me read to you 8 to 11. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait, wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. Sorry, shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at this place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Where it says the land there, it can be translated land or earth, and that's same for the Greek in the New Testament. But you see here that meekness is virtually the same thing as waiting for the Lord. Do you see that? You've got those two that are put parallel, waiting for the Lord. They'll inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. It's also those same people who are not rushing in uh, to take the land by violence and anger and wrath. The way of meekness is a way of peace in this verse. 
So meekness here is waiting for God to act rather than grasping at things for yourself. The not meek, I couldn't really think of the exact opposite of this, but the not meek rush in and they bulldoze their way through things. The meek wait for God. They could bless their way through things, but they don't. They they wait for God to do it. They have confidence that God will act. They have confidence in God and not themselves to accomplish what needs to be done. Now that doesn't mean that they do nothing, but it does mean that they go about things in a very different way. They go about that action meekly, depending on God, not putting confidence in their own clever actions. So a Christian is someone who is meek. It means that they trust in God and not themselves in all these things. Another part of the Christian's DNA, sorry we're we're rushing through them, but there are quite a few of them. Another part of the Christian's DNA is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is the last one in our section of how we relate to God. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now again, hungering and thirsting are not generally seen as good things, are they? But here, the Christian is one who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, righteousness in Matthew's gospel, it nearly always refers to an outward, practical righteousness, not a legal one. What I mean is this. It's righteousness in terms of a right action, rather than a right standing with God. So, for example, in Matthew, John the Baptist protests that he shouldn't baptise Jesus. And then Matthew 3.15, Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfil all righteousness. And then he consented. Now, Jesus can't be saying, do this and declare me legally righteous, because he already is. He's saying that it's the right thing to do. This is the godly course of action. And that's what Matthew generally means by righteousness. Why is that important? Because this is what the Christian hungers for. Not a right standing with God, because they've already got that. The Christian here hungers for righteousness, for godliness, for holiness, if you like. That's what's more in mind. In Bible terms, he's already been justified... It's sanctification he's after. It's growing in holiness he's hungering and thirsting for. So a Christian, really, you could put it as as one who hungers and thirsts for holiness. Now that means two things if you think about it. One, a Christian is someone who acknowledges that they're not holy. A church should not be a holy huddle with everyone pretending they're better than they are. The world is actually full of that, isn't it? That kind of hypocrisy. Christians are to hunger and thirst after righteousness because they know their actions and their thoughts and their speech are not righteous. That's why they're hungering and thirsting after it. That we don't often see that, I think, owes more to our acting skills as Christians than actual genuine transformation. We don't see a lot of sin in the church, but actually we are all sinners, aren't we? We are all hungering and thirsting after that holiness. But the church, this church, is full of sinners. Do you know that? In that sense, we should be not so different from the world around us. In the sense that there should be no sense of holier than thou with the rest of society. On a real scale of things, when you put us in the measure with God's holiness, we're not. The problems that you find in the world, you find in the church. 
But the difference should be in the church that we're man enough or woman enough to admit it. Are we big enough to admit it though? So that's the first difference. The first thing it teaches us that we're not holy. The second difference is this, uh, the second difference this verse means, number two, is that a Christian is someone who desperately wants to be holy. We want righteousness and holiness on the level that we want food and drink. We want to please God more than we want to satisfy our own appetites. So we pursue holiness. We fight sin in our lives with the Spirit's help. We seek to live lives that reflect the holiness of God. In how we treat God and in how we treat others. So we're not holy, but we thirst for holiness. We seek after it. We're ones who want it. And that shows itself in how we treat God and how we treat others. And that nicely moves us to our second four bits of DNA. Dealing with how a disciple of the kingdom treats others. So first of all, merciful. A Christian is also someone who's characterised by mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. Now that might sound a bit unkind on the surface of it, but mercy from God is kindness itself. If we think about what we deserve as spiritually bankrupt sinners, well, isn't it wrath that we deserve? Mercy then is not giving us our deserved punishment, but showing mercy. And because we have received such great mercy as a Christian, a Christian is one who shows mercy to others. Jesus told the story of a man who had a great debt cancelled by a ruler, millions of pounds in today's money. And then he went and demanded small debts from other people to be repaid to him. When the ruler heard of it, he was furious. How could someone shown such mercy not show mercy to others? And the same is true as, as, as Christians. How can we not show mercy to others when we have been shown so much mercy? So we're to be a community characterised by mercy and forgiveness. In our relationships with each other and our relationships with the world at large. No one should be able to find a more loving, caring community on the planet than those who have been forgiven by God. A Christian is someone who shows mercy and forgiveness to others. Do I? A community of Christians should be a place characterised by mercy and forgiveness. Is our church characterised by those things? Sixthly, pure in heart. Christians are also pure in heart. That is a purity that's not just skin deep. Purity is not just sexual purity here either. It encompasses all our behaviour similar to the idea of cleanness that we saw in Leviticus. The heart is the centre of your being. It's the part of you that makes you you. You could lose an arm, you could lose a leg and still be you, but you can't lose your heart and still be you. Jesus is saying that in the DNA of a disciple of Jesus is purity of heart. Not an absolute purity, because we've just been hearing about all those other things, haven't we? But a heart that's been cleansed. Not one that we clean ourselves, Proverbs 20 verse 9, who can say I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. The answer there should be nobody. But a heart that Christ has cleansed, so Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
It would be weird, wouldn't it, it uh, uh, to be anything else, bearing in mind what we've seen about ourselves, that it's actually one that Jesus has cleaned, not one that we've cleaned ourselves. Not that we can't cloud our hearts with sin. One commentator said this about this verse, sin befogs and beclouds the heart so that one cannot see God. Which fits exactly with what we're promised that we will do one day if we have a pure heart. So we're to be pure right at the centre of our being because we're cleansed by Jesus. Seventhly, peacemakers. Christians are peacemakers. Now this isn't talking about a job in international relations, though it doesn't exclude that. A peacemaker is someone who makes peace of warring factions. Be that people who've fallen out or groups that are at each other's throats. Christians are to seek to end those conflicts. And normally Christians are actually sought out in those sort of positions. Normally because they're trusted by both sides. I remember when I lived in a house, there was uh, eight of us in a house. And if you can imagine a house of sort of 20-year-olds, you know, eight of you, and you've got bills to pay and you've got all sorts of things, there were quite a few falling out uh, in the house. And uh, at one point, there was a point where the house had basically turned into two factions, And nobody in the house was speaking to everybody else in the house, apart from me. And I I remember having to sort of sit down and sort of broker a peace between these people. I ended up being put in charge of things like bills in the house, because one side didn't trust the other uh, to deal with the bills or things like that. It was crazy. But it reminds us that that that's the sort of thing that should happen as Christians. Are you someone that people look to as a peacemaker? In all sorts of different situations. Are you someone that people trust to be fair in those situations? Are you someone who doesn't fall into factions that are fighting with each other? Who wants to see an end to conflicts? That's what it's talking about here. Peacemakers. Ones who make peace between people. And then finally in this section, persecuted. (coughs) One of the things that will characterise a disciple of Jesus is that they're persecuted. Not just physically, but do you notice verbally? Do you see that there? Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's not just talking about physical persecution here. Right from the start, it's talking about verbal persecution, slandered as well as vilified. This is not a sign that we're doing something wrong, but that we belong to Christ's new community. Because if you think about it, if you wanted to sum it up, what these verses have been describing, you've got someone who's poor in spirit, who weeps over sin and injustice, um, meek, who hungers and thirsts to do God's will, merciful, someone who's pure in heart, a peacemaker, who was persecuted and did not retaliate. Really what we're describing here is Jesus, if you think about it, poor in spirit, Weeping over sin and injustice, not his own, but others. Meek, hungering and thirsting to do God's will, merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker. And what happened to Jesus? He showed these, uh, these characteristics all the way through his life. But he was persecuted, wasn't he? The DNA of a disciple really is Jesus' DNA. And if Jesus was persecuted, then so will we. But Jesus is still able to say that we are blessed. We're counted in the same group as Jesus. We're counted in the same group as the prophets. 
Actually, it's a mark that we're part of God's people when we're persecuted, when people don't like what we say. So those are the characteristics that we're to have. Really, it's just, in another way, it's saying, be like Jesus. A disciple will be like Jesus. It's almost inevitable. He's got the same DNA. But the passage doesn't just give us our DNA. It also gives us our destination, our future. This is a shorter section. It gives us the future for a follower. Each characteristic of the kingdom has a matching reason why someone who is like that is blessed. Something is promised to each group. So for those who mourn, comfort is promised. For those who mourn for sin, comfort is coming. The coming kingdom, if you like, is a kingdom of comfort. The comfort is that our penalty has been paid. But more than that, the comfort promised is that after a hard life in the battle, fighting sin, those arms are open wide now, ready to embrace us in glory and tell us that everything is now over, that it's all done. The battle is over, sin is no more, evil is no more, and now we can take comfort in the battle's end. One day we will not mourn for sin, because we won't sin. Sin will be no more and we shall be comforted. The meek, for the meek there is a promise of the earth. The coming kingdom will be ruled by the meek. Those who haven't grasped at power in this life. Who haven't got everything that they could by bulldozing through others. One day, they'll get everything. Those who wait for the Lord, one day that wait will pay off. They'll inherit the earth. One day you and I shall rule under God, but will rule this world. Everything shall be ours. So it doesn't matter if you don't have everything now. It doesn't matter if you're feeling unimportant or forgotten now. One day you'll rule the world. So we don't need to snatch and grab now, whether for things or position or importance or popularity. One day we shall have everything. The meek will inherit the earth. For the hungry and thirsty, there'll be satisfaction. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, the coming kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. One day what we thirst for will be ours. Not just a righteous righteous state, but concrete righteousness. No longer will we displease God. We'll be perfect before our Father. Mercy. I've got behind on my... Mercy. For those who have shown mercy, mercy is promised. The coming kingdom is a kingdom of mercy. Everyone who is there will be there because of the mercy shown to them. No human being, mere human being, will be there on their own merit. The kingdom will be a kingdom of forgiven sinners, transformed and shown mercy. Seeing God. For those who have a pure heart is the promise of seeing God. The coming kingdom is a kingdom of sight and not just faith. As I said before, one commentator said, sin befogs and beclouds the heart so that one cannot see God. But when we're in glory, we'll see him face to face. When we're in glory, there will be sight, not just faith. Vindication. For those who have been peacemakers in this world, vindication is promised in the next In the coming kingdom, we will be known as God's sons. Sons of the ultimate peacemaker between God and man. God himself. And also a great reward. 
For those who are persecuted, a reward awaits in heaven. Not 70 virgins, as they teach in Islam, but all that we've been talking about. Seeing God, vindication, the earth and all that's in it, eternity with God himself. All these things are promised as reward for those who are blessed by God. This is how we are blessed. The thing is, though, as we close, this is not all in the future. The kingdom of heaven begins now. Do you notice that all the verses in between, verses 4 and uh, up to verse 9, they're all set in the future. Shall be, shall be, shall be, shall be. But verses 3 and verses 10 are set in the present. Do you see that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven begins now. Christians already belong to the kingdom and the kingdom belongs to them. So Matthew is saying that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is ours. Not will be ours, but is ours. It's a present reality. It's something that exists now. It belongs to us now. But it won't be fully manifested, won't be fully shown or revealed until Jesus comes back. So for now, we share some of the benefits of that kingdom. We have a foretaste, if you like. Though we mourn, we are comforted. The comforter has already come, hasn't he? The Holy Spirit. Though we are meek, we know we are owners of everything. We know that that's coming. Though we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're already righteous in Christ. Our status has been changed. Though we wait for mercy, we've already received mercy. We're already forgiven. Though we wait to see God, we see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Christ, we see more than a glimpse of his glory. We get a vision of God's glory. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we already see God. And though we wait for our final vindication when this world acknowledges it, God already calls us sons. We're already part of his family. We're already his children, even if the world doesn't know it yet. And all this means that as we gather together, we see the DNA of the kingdom in each other now. We get a foretaste of that glory that is to come now. Communities of Christians should be little glimpses of glory. As Christ transforms us more into his likeness, as the family resemblance grows. Merciful, peace-loving, honest about sin, humble, sometimes hated by the world but loved by one another. This is the blueprint for the kingdom, which means in this age, it's the blueprint of the church. The church is to be a breakout of the kingdom in this world before the end comes and the kingdom is fulfilled. But wouldn't we all want to live in a kingdom, sorry, in a community that is a little taste of heaven? Well, brothers and sisters, here is our blueprint Here is our game plan in preparation for the fulfilment of the kingdom. I wonder what this would look like in our church life if we showed these characteristics that we've been talking about, if we lived them out. 
Well, I put that as your over-coffee question. Part of it is working it out together, isn't it, as a church? And I'll remind you about it a little later. What would this look like in our church life? 